0: Hi, I'm Luke Walker, and this is Inside Industry with iREO, the premier podcast about how WSU researchers fund their research privately, which is also known as industry. I have with me today John Oatley, the Associate Dean for Research for the College of Veterinary Medicine, a tenured professor in the School of Molecular Biosciences, and Director for the Functional Genomics Initiative. John, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing well. Nice to be here.
0: It's nice to have you. Can you tell me a little bit about your background and uh, what got you here?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I wish I could say that I was born always wanting to be a researcher, um, but that would not be true. I really developed a passion for science and doing research, especially research that involves animals, when I was an undergraduate in college. And so I grew up in in a kind of interesting way. I was born in the state of Utah. And when I was six years old, my family relocated to Thailand and I lived in Bangkok, Thailand for almost 10 years, well into my early teenage years. And when we moved back to the United States, we moved to a small um, ranching community in Northern Nevada. And I developed an interest in that community with livestock production, uh, mostly cattle and sheep production. And so I went to the University of Nevada in Reno to pursue an undergraduate degree in animal science with the intent of wanting to be a cattle rancher after I had graduated. And when I did graduate with a bachelor's degree, I started working as a range boss on a cattle ranch in eastern Nevada. And I did that for several months period of time in and kind of decided that I want to do something more related to improving how we generated animals to feed people, and got back in touch with my undergraduate advisor at the University of Nevada, and she said, I I think you need to do a career in science, and put me in touch with a faculty member at WSU who was in the animal science department who was working on strategies to improve production of uh, cattle, and He offered me a position in his lab to pursue a graduate degree, and I immediately became immersed in it, and it just caught on with me, the idea of using science and experimentation to come up with strategies and discover new things that we could use to improve how we generate food animals and produce them for the purpose of generating products that are gonna feed people. And so after I finished my PhD at Washington State University, I wanted to get a better background in molecular genetics and how we could change the genome of animals for the purposes of creating biomedical models that we could use for research to understand the etiology of disease, how to treat disease, but also how we could shape traits in animals for the purpose of improving how we feed people um, by shaping food animals. And so that led me to a postdoc at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia with one of the original discoverers of transgenic technologies and genome manipulation in animals. And after I finished that postdoc, I took a faculty position at Penn State University and started my own independent research program studying animal models and using transgenic technologies to create animal models for biomedical research but also for improving livestock production. And after I was on the faculty at Penn State for a number of years, I was presented with an opportunity to move back to Washington State University and take a faculty position in the School of Molecular Biosciences in the College of Veterinary Medicine. And so I relocated my program back to my scientific roots at WSU and have been here ever since. And we've been quite successful in the research that we do in using now gene editing technologies, mainly CRISPR, Cas, to create novel animal models that we study um, diseases that impact reproductive efficiency, but also in using gene editing technologies to develop applications in livestock to improve the production efficiency of those animals. And so that's kind of been my scientific road and where I'm at now.
0: So I've seen that your research could help speed the spread of desirable characteristics in livestock and help improve food production. Can you describe a little bit why this is necessary and maybe discuss some of the issues with animal breeding?
1: Absolutely, so the traits that, that livestock possess have been dramatically impacted by human intervention. And we can trace the origins of genetic engineering of animal genomes to produce desirable phenotypes or traits or characteristics back to the domestication of animals some 10,000 years ago. The first time that a, a human decided that they wanted to create a situation where a particular male would breed with a particular female, whether that was horses or cattle or sheep or goats or even dogs, then we took away natural selection. And by way of human intervention, Force the creation of a new organism that had a combination of genetics that we as a human being deemed to be desirable. And so that really has, you know, back 10,000 years ago, we can say is the dawn of animal genetic engineering. And we've been doing it ever since as an ancient practice, which is selective breeding, deciding based on an observable phenotype that I can observe a characteristic or a trait of an animal that I think if I put the combination together between a male and a female. That their offspring is going to have something that's an improvement, what we call genetic gain. And so it's a really ancient practice and it's a sloppy practice because we get inadvertent uh, negative combinations in addition to positive combinations. It also takes many generations and decades to make incremental change in the genome by way of selective breeding because, again, it's a kind of a messy process. And so for us, the the leading edge or the future of improving traits, performance traits in food animals, so their ability to grow, their ability to resist disease, their ability to produce protein products, whether that's meat or milk more efficiently, is really using state-of-the-art genome editing strategies to shape the genetics. And when you create a genome that has the right combination of pieces, How that's spread throughout a population of animals is through reproductive processes. It comes through either the sperm or the egg. Those are the only cell types in the body that contribute genetic information to the next generation. So we're always looking to devise tools that we can more efficiently disseminate unique or desirable or elite genetics through reproductive performance, reproductive efficiency. Can we make sperm? Can we make eggs that carry the genetics we want? And then can we disseminate them in a large scale way? And so some of our research has been focused on how do we develop methodologies that we can get both large-scale and widespread dissemination of desirable designer elite genetics within food animal populations.
0: How is it exactly that you're able to edit genes to get these desirable traits?
1: Right. So conventional approaches were, were focused on using recombinant DNA, foreign DNA, that we would try to put into the genome in site-specific or even random ways. And those conventional approaches never really caught on because of a host of issues, inefficiency being a big one, the fact that you're putting foreign DNA into the genome, creating a, a condition that never could arise in nature. And so when gene editing came on the scene, it changed all of that. We can now design molecular scissors to go into the genome of any cell whether that's a skin cell, whether that's a liver cell, or whether that's a single cell embryo, go into the genome of that cell, precisely break open a site in the genome and either ask it to repair differently, which will create a genetic change, or repair using a template. And when it repairs using a template, you can also create a genomic change. So if we do this in a one cell embryo, right after an egg has been fertilized by a sperm, then that genome edit or genomic change is going to be inherited by every daughter cell that comes from that one cell embryo. So when the one cell embryo becomes two cells, it becomes four cells, it becomes eight cells, it becomes a fetus, it's born as an offspring, all of the cells in that organism are going to possess the genome edit that we introduced when it was at the one cell stage. And we primarily now use CRISPR-Cas technology
0: to do that. Could you talk a little bit about the CRISPR-Cas technology? I'm really curious about it.
1: Absolutely. So CRISPR-Cas technology is quite simple. Um, and there's various spin-offs of CRISPR-Cas now. But at the heart of it all, it's designing a RNA molecule called a guide RNA that will have the ability to identify and bind to site specific uh, specific sites in the genome of the cell. And when it does that, it recruits a protein that is also introduced as part of the CRISPR toolbox called Cas9. That Cas9 protein uses that guide RNA as a docking system and breaks DNA within the site of where that guide RNA had found in the genome. And when it breaks double-stranded DNA, the immediate response in a eukaryotic cell is to use a repair pathway called non-homologous end joining. Non-homologous end joining is a natural repair pathway. It happens every time our double-strand DNA breaks, if we're exposed to UV radiation, ionizing radiation, any sort of clastogen or substance that would break DNA. Well, non-homologous end joining, even though it rapidly puts broken ends of DNA back together, it's extremely air-prone. And so oftentimes it ends up with a new insertion or a deletion, and that's a genomic change. And so when we design guide RNAs to target a specific site in the genome, we can complex them with this Cas9 protein, introduce it into the cell. It's going to find its site in the genome and cause double-stranded DNA to break. And then how that double-stranded DNA is repaired, it's going to be repaired differently than it was before it broke. And that's going to create a genomic change or an edit.
0: All right. Now, reading some articles, it looks like a consideration for utilizing this type of next-generation solutions is public perception. Could you describe if that's the case and how you're managing that?
1: Yeah, the public narrative is something that's key to trying to advance the science that we do or anybody does in genome editing into the public domain. We can develop, devise, create all kinds of cool tools or new technologies or methodologies in the lab with the intent of wanting to get it into the public domain, but it won't get into the public domain if the public doesn't accept it. And so crafting or shaping or having a different narrative with the public about what it means to be genetically engineered or genetically modified. And unfortunately, there's a stigma around genetic engineering or genetic modification Um, that is born out of the world of transgenesis. And that world was built on inserting recombinant or foreign DNA into the genome. With gene editing, most gene editing applications, we don't do that. And so there needs to be a different narrative. The intent of genome editing is different. The outcome of genome editing is different than conventional approaches to transgenesis. And so oftentimes the public just puts gene editing into the same bin for discussion as traditional GMOs or transgenics. And they're not, they're completely different. The science is different. The intended outcome is different. And so we need to be working with the public to provide fact-based information, relevant information, so that people are making an informed decision rather than an emotional or gut reaction decision based on debates and information of 20 years ago. And so we've been working as part of the Functional Genomics Initiative at WSU to try to do that through devising strategies for public engagement, where we can put our scientists and our ethicists and our philosophers in front of the public to talk about what is the science of genome editing, how it's different, how it should be looked at differently, how it should be regulated differently, what some of the applications are and the intent of developing genome editing in animals. And so with the Functional Genomics Initiative, we've recruited bioethicists, we've recruited scientists, we've recruited federal and state engagement people, and we've recruited communication specialists to try to start um, having a new public narrative um, about genome editing in animals.
0: You also testified before Congress about this. Could you talk about that too?
1: Right. The other major aspect to advancing genome editing applications in animals from the lab to the public domain is also federal regulatory approval processes. And so at present, the Food and Drug Administration oversees the the application of any sort of genetic alteration, any sort of any technology that uses genetic alteration in animals and their process for seeking approval to put those animals into the human food supply is the same process that is used for drug development. And the challenge there is the requirements to show the effects of drugs on animals are are quite different than what one would need to do to show the effects of genome editing on an animal. And so the current structure for federal regulatory approval process and monitoring is not aligned to the science of genome editing. And so Congress is interested in how do we modernize the federal regulatory approval and monitoring process. And there's been an ongoing debate in the federal government about whether the The authority for genome editing applications in food animals should be with the Food and Drug Administration or should it be with the United States Department of Agriculture. And that debate has been ongoing because genome editing applications in plants rests with the USDA. For, or the Department of Agriculture for oversight when it comes to animals, the federal regulatory approval and monitoring rests with Food and Drug Administration. And so it's kind of a it's a very complex and confusing process for developers of genome editing applications in animals, such as myself. And so Congress was interested in hearing about perspectives born out of academia and people that are developing genome editing, editing applications in animals in academic lab setting. And that led to my my testimony in Congress about my perspectives and my suggestions on a path forward in the United States to modernize the federal regulatory and approval process.
0: Interesting. And you've, you know, collaborated a little bit with Congress, but I've also known you've collaborated with other uh, universities. Uh, how's that been? Uh, has, it, has that been beneficial?
1: Absolutely. So, I mean, our science is only as strong as the people that we interact with. No one individual lab that I've ever come across has all the tools and all the capacity to do all things for big grand projects. And so being able to find partnerships for people that bring a piece to the puzzle to really getting after something um, substantial is absolutely critical and i've been fortunate to find collaborators at other institutions that are wonderful colleagues and generous and easy to work with and and sometimes scientists get competitive with one another but we've been able to find collaborations where we're not competitive with one another but where we can feed off of each other's strengths to really get after things and so I've had wonderful collaborations with some partners at the Roslyn Institute in um, Scotland and also at Utah State University um, here in the U.S. And that has been, I think, key to really advancing science and really advancing it to a point where we feel like it has commercial potential and it has the, the potential to actually get into the public domain within the next few years
0: now, how has industry helped you fund your research? Uh, uh, who's been helping you? How did the interaction start? I, we're, you know, I'd love to hear all the details.
1: Yeah, I mean, as academic scientists, you know, we, we tend to think about primarily our funding for research coming from federal agencies, whether that's the National Institutes of Health, the United States Department of Agriculture, National Science Foundation, what have you. We, we typically don't look to industry because it hasn't been something that we've been trained for. But when we're developing applications in food animals, it's almost an immediate next step to go from research and development to commercialized technology that will advance into the public domain. And without a commercial channel, it probably dies in the lab. And so really developing partnerships with a commercial entity that has an interest in the technology and trying to move it forward, I think is important. Now, I will say that in my experience working with industry as an academic is like worlds colliding because we look at things from different perspectives in terms of how the science should be developed, how the science should be presented, when the science can be presented. And it's just different perspectives because we have different objectives to what we're using the science and the research for. Um, and so it's at times painful, but at times it's 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 also um, positive. And you can see the benefit when you can make a, an initial discovery work for five or ten years to really flesh it out into a technology and then have a commercial entity say we want to take it forward and try to really get it in public domain. So I think there's there's growing pains when academicians try to work with industry, but it's an act, it's an absolute essential if we really truly want to get our discoveries out of the lab and into impacting society.
0: Now, John, is there anything else that you'd like to add about your research or or anything else that, you know, we've talked about today?
1: Yeah, I'll just add that, you know, with some of the research that we do on the food animal side of things, you know, the application right after the, the next step after discovery and and development is application. And so, in developing those industry partnerships are important, but it's also led me into the world of developing uh, my own startup company, and that's been a really eye-opening experience as well. In how do I how do I close the loop on making a basic discovery as an academic scientist, advancing that basic discovery into something that that might have potential in society, and then developing the commercial channel myself to try to get it into society. And I think it's just it's been a wonderful experience thus far. And I think it's something that we need to encourage our scientists and our our investigators and faculty at academic institutions, land grant universities to think about more.
0: All right. Well, John, I have no more questions for you. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate hearing everything that you've been doing with livestock and uh, speed the spread of desirable characteristics. You testified before Congress, your gene editing tool. Thank you so much. It's been fascinating to learn about everything you've been doing here at WSU. Absolutely, I enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, thank you. Well, this concludes our episode. My name is Luke and this is Inside Industry with iREO.